0: Welcome to Ad Exchanger Talks, the podcast devoted to examining the issues and trends in advertising and marketing technology that matter most to you.
1: Consumers are more connected than ever. Today's sponsor, TransUnion, uses a three-dimensional view of identity covering people, households, and devices to power its true audience data marketplace, formerly known as TrueOptic. Enabling speed, scale, and connectivity the True Audience Data Marketplace is the definitive destination for targeting streaming TV and audio homes.
2: This is Alison Schiff. You're listening to Ad Exchanger Talks, and on this episode, we're talking about privacy. Privacy has been a part of my beat since I started at Ad Exchanger, so just around 8 years ago. And to be honest, back in 2014, 2015, our privacy-focused coverage felt important for us to do, but it wasn't a big traffic driver. People sort of just glossed over it. But that's not the case anymore. In the lead up to GDPR and now with five state privacy laws set to go into effect next year, consumer privacy and issues related to data collection are top of mind for everyone. At the very least, privacy professionals have job security. This week, I have Fiona Campbell Webster as my guest. Fiona is the Chief Privacy Officer at MediaMath, and she's in the trenches every day thinking about data policy, data governance, and regulatory compliance, which is only getting more complicated. But before we dive in, let me quickly plug Programmatic I.O., which is taking place October 17th and 18th at the New York Marriott Marquis. We have a really good slate of speakers. We've got Hershey, NBCU, American Express, Dentsu, Jounce Media, Amazon Ads, Omnicom Media Group, Dollar General, Warner Brothers Discovery, Microsoft, and more. Early bird rates are available until September 9th, and podcast listeners get an additional 10% off using the code POD10. That's P-O-D-10, numeral 10. So head on over to programmatic.io to... Reserve your seat, and I'll see you there. Hey, Fiona, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks for inviting me to join, Alison.
2: But of course, I've been looking forward to having you on, um, not just because I'm an American who loves accents, but because you have uh, interesting points to share with our audience. (laughs) Thanks so
3: much, and I've got quite a confusing accent as well. It's a little bit Australian, a little bit English, and I, I don't know, I think I'm picking up some American now. What, where, where do you hail from? I was born in England, and I have Australian parents, and I grew up in Brisbane, Australia, and then I spent a lot of my adult life in, in London, which is where I trained as a lawyer.
2: Well, I actually want to wind back the clock a little bit to before you trained as a lawyer. I think I have the timeline right because you have a background in music. You did the vocals on an ambient album in the early nineteen nineties, I believe. Um, I don't know if that was before you started on your your journey toward becoming an attorney, but tell tell me a little bit about that. Yeah, thanks. Um, I
3: was a lead vocalist on an album called Hypnotone AI. Uh, which was on creation records in the UK in the 90s, and it was the early digital music era, and the guy that was producing it was, you know, very into creating everything digitally. And I'd previously trained um, as a classical singer, training in opera at um, the Queensland Conservatorium, and I'd gone over to London to try and, you know, make it as a, a singer and a performer, and I was really into songwriting as well. And so we collaborated and um, created this album, which, you know, it was very early days. So I don't know how well it did in the UK, but apparently it was quite popular in Japan. Um, over oh, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. And, you know, that background sort of really led me when I went over to becoming a lawyer eventually to really focusing on digital industries as well. So I was you know, looking at early um, digital use of, of recordings, et cetera, and was looking at the Napster cases. And then basically that whole journey has led me to continue on this digital legal path as well.
2: I feel like I, I really missed a beat because I should have queued up a song that you were singing on and I should have played a clip right now that would have been a really good thing to do. This is a podcast. This is audio. Oh, so <laughs> you know what? I I still want to do that. So what I'm going to do now, I, I I would love to know a little bit more about the journey like to becoming an attorney and specifically an attorney with a focus on privacy and an ad tech, because I mean, looking at your, your resume, you've done work for seismic NBCU, Rakuten marketing, triple lift beeswax. And that's not even a, a complete list. So, uh, Talk to me a little bit about your path, and while you do that, I'm I'm gonna go and look for a clip to play from Hypnotone AI. <laughs> okay. Well, the clips I like are Quasar, and then
3: there's another one, God CPU. I'm gonna find it. Thank you. Okay. So, yeah, the the journey to um, working for these digital companies came about. I was working with a colleague that I'd worked with at a company called Babel Gum, which was an early competitor of Hulu and uh, in Netflix, early days in that area. And he had previously worked with DoubleClick and had a lot of clients uh, that were in the ad tech space. And just my background as well from having been in the music industry and working on music deals and looking at all the different rights and how they work in that field really lent itself to understanding the different uses of data so you know who's using what who's collecting the data how how they're doing it what the rights are and then out of that working for these clients um the privacy laws started to really develop and GDPR was coming about. And I just got really obsessed with reading about GDPR because I was quite fascinated about the development in this area. And it kind of was part of that same journey of digital expansion and digital economies. Um, So I was, I'd moved to New York by that time. And that gave me an opportunity to really uh, kickstart my career in the US as well, because, you know, I was a little ahead of the curve than some of the other consultants that were out there at the time, because I'd really been working in ad tech, but also knew a lot about GDPR and read up a lot on about that. So it was, you know, perfect timing for me to sort of focus a little bit more as well on this burgeoning area of uh, the, the global privacy laws.
2: I mean, definitely ahead of the game because people acted in late 2017 as if GDPR fell from the sky, uh, which it did not. But before we talk a little bit more about GDPR, uh, I would like to play a few seconds of God CPU from from 1991. Okay, let's see if this works. Do you hear it? I do. Okay.
3: <laughs> That's you. That's my, my opera and jazz sort of sweeping going on with the digital.
2: I love this. Okay. <laughs> um. So what is uh, a day in the life for an ad tech focused chief privacy officer now? We'll talk in more detail about all of the different privacy laws that are coming out in uh, different states, which definitely makes life more complicated. Uh, we can get into that in, in more detail in a bit, but but yeah, like you wake up, I assume you pour yourself some coffee unless you're an utter lunatic. And then what do you what do you do? Like what is a day in the life of an ad tech focused chief privacy officer?
3: Well, you know, once I've woken up, even before I've woken up, I think I'm sort of like looking at all the stories that have come up. A lot of people are sharing a lot of content at the moment about, you know, what's happening, what's coming down the pike, the nuances and the changes of privacy laws globally. And it's it's nonstop and never-ending, um, you know, and there's detail in each of these laws as well. So you have to continually be... Uh, a continual learner and reading in and then trying to sort of boil it down into some kind of actionable insights or a a fast way of giving that information to your colleagues internally. And then also working across um, externally and building those relationships so that you, you have an idea of, you know, where the market's moving. Otherwise, you can sort of look at the strict letter of the law each time and you're not really understanding, you know, the, the background of what's driving certain nuances and also how other companies in the ecosystem are going to potentially respond, um, which could be multiple interpretations of something that sort of on the face of it may seem clear. And then as you go along, the, the, the various interpretations make you realize it's not as clear as you thought in the first place.
2: Are you pulled into product meetings?
3: Yeah, absolutely. I have a weekly um, meeting with the VP of policy and product, um, Ferdinand David, and we work together so that I'm sort of helping advise on the laws and what my position is um, from that interpretation. And he also pulls in what they're doing and then works with the product teams on the operational elements of that. Uh, he's fantastic. He, you know, he really understands the legal side of it as well. So it, it's a great collaboration.
2: Is there ever a point, um, even when you're pulled in early, where a feature or a product either has to be modified or scrapped sort of midstream because of feedback from from you or from uh, from Ferdinand?
3: We haven't actually in our tenure together had that experience yet, but I do think the teams that worked before us in the early days of putting an implementation for GDPR did have uh, some of that element of having to say no a little bit more because you know the teams were learning the parameters around of what you know the privacy requirements were but since i've come on board it was a fairly mature um privacy program that had already been put in place by the previous team which is fantastic what we've been doing is fine tuning that uh trying to scale a little bit more uh look at you know what's now required where we can have some sort of commonalities with gdpr what changes need to be made for us state laws um so you know it's an iterative process. But so far, you know, I think most of the teams uh, that we are working with have got a good understanding of that. So um, they're bringing things to us, uh, opportunities that seem to have been uh, thought through themselves a little bit more before they're looking at the, the privacy and security um, processing.
2: And I'm sure that really was part of a of a long process because you're not going to have privacy by design and you know engineers necessarily thinking that way until um, you know for lack of a better term it's sort of beaten into them even though it's an important thing to be thinking about because you know when when an engineer is thinking about innovation that's what they're thinking about they're thinking about doing cool things or solving problems and the perspective you bring maybe at the very beginning wasn't necessarily welcome but was very necessary absolutely and i think so
3: some of the the role that i played in some of my previous companies you know beeswax and triple lift that were that was a sort of an earlier stage in you know gdpr being rolled out but even those companies that actually had a really good understanding of what was required at that point so it was more of a a conversation and um a a collaboration rather than just me giving advice and teaching and educating so it's very much continuing like a two-way street you know I'll be supporting on the interpretation of the laws and what that means and and then saying you know I'm not a product person so but I'm continually educating myself as well and asking them for input on like well you know Blow it up a little bit more for me. What does that mean? What are that? What's the actual movement of the data? What's actually happening here? And you know, then together we'll come together with the right answer.
2: And um, my, my impression is that the privacy department, if you will, doesn't always get funded as much as it should. I've heard this just from other privacy professionals, um, regardless of how important it is. And uh, I'm wondering if that's changing at all privacy tech is obviously a growing category and partnerships have to be struck and vetting has to be done and your perspective is really important. So so yeah, I mean, are, are you finding that you're getting more money funneled to the projects that you need to focus on? Well, that's
3: a good question. But, you know, you have to balance the sort of overall business initiatives with what you need and what you can do yourself. And you can do on like, you know, a, a light budget rather than a big budget. So when they were building out the privacy program at Media Math, I think their budgets were probably larger because, you know, it was the beginning of this. And so then we can sort of take the work that's been done and iterate on that and look again. So I think, you know, always having a business mind on about what is the overall goal of the business and what can we achieve is necessary because ultimately, you know, the business needs to be making a profit as well. So we've got to look at every element of that and do it in the most uh, light touch yet comprehensive way possible, based on the tools we have and bringing in new tools, particularly technology for scaling. So, um, you know, it's something that you can't really do a one and done. You have to keep looking at that and be really careful about, using resources that are available such as industry uh industry uh self-regulatory compliance um working groups you know like the iab they're they're amazing with the work that they're doing the iab legal councils gives an incredible amount of value um the nai they're fantastic as well giving you know a a bi-weekly or a weekly policy thing the working groups are excellent so you know in that way you can really leverage some of the available tools to be able to help you with your compliance program and then also the privacy technologies like we're using one trust for instance for um our data subject access requests and our um global consumer requests and that takes a little time to build out and and to to work with so you know, rather than maybe having a full resource for these things, we, we took on a, a consultant to help us with building some of that, but it's not something that we need all the time. So, you know, you have to really think about what's absolutely needed and, and then i um, champion for that as well make sure you, you get those fundamentals.
2: And you are an NAI
3: board member, right? I, I was this year. I'm not, um, uh, MediaMath had been for a while, uh, but I, I think the work that they do is absolutely superb.
2: Well, I have a question about the viability of self-regulation because i I do believe that self-regulation is um, is important because it, it keeps people on their toes in a way that i think regulation doesn't necessarily always do because you know you're you're trying to stay ahead of being regulated and you're doing it hopefully for the right for the right reasons but we are possibly entering an era where self-regulation isn't necessarily smiled upon in the same way it was. My sense is that the FTC was very pro-self-regulation of the advertising industry for a long time, but maybe that's no longer the case. I'm just curious what you think about that dynamic and about the viability of self-regulation for for ad tech and for digital advertising going forward.
3: Well, I think the core tenets of what the regula- self-regulators are performing for the ad tech industry will continue to remain important for instance the the technological solutions that would be uh cross industry part of the ecosystem there isn't really another forum regulators can't do that there aren't laws that can be put in place to be able to have the uh ability to work across industry to build and create technical solutions to be able to comply with laws that are put into place so i think that's where the continued value will be uh, in these areas and also for interpretations and guidance on on some of the laws as they start to to be built out so i do think there's a continued um, need for that the opt-out mechanisms like the ad choices icon all of these tools that have been built in the industry for a while in response to uh, consumer uh, uh, needs rather than laws have um, really resulted in the creation of the um, maturation at the moment of, of the industry continuing to build out technological solutions ahead of the laws being put in place.
2: Speaking of uh, legislation, though, what's what's your take on the, the American Data Privacy and Protection Act? Do you think it's uh, a good framework for f- privacy protection at the national level? And what do you think its chances are?
3: I actually think it's a pretty good framework overall, but it has some issues and it has some conflicting elements to it, particularly in that one of the enumerated purposes, which is permissible, is to provide targeted advertising, and in the, um, l- not the last draft, but the draft before that, they had um, also included in that the the, the cross-site contextual, um, the cross-site uh, ability to advertise cross-site to individuals, but in the last draft, they we put that into a sensitive data category, which requires a prior explicit opt-in. So there's some conflicts there, and there's been um, uh, a letter sent from Privacy for America, and I believe the NAI as well, to request that these this be reversed again and and changed so that you know the real ability to do proper targeted advertising is not restricted in this way so we need some clarification around that and i think that's really essential to the industry on the whole though to have something that is a federal law that gives privacy rights to all americans in an equal way i think is a, a fantastic opportunity and one that shouldn't be missed uh I, I do think there are preemption rights here which we need for uh, to be able to um comply in in a harmonized way um, within America. And you know the the issues that are being challenged by, for instance, California uh, wanting to have a floor rather than a ceiling will not help businesses. and particularly small businesses, which, which need to be able to, um, as we said before, you know, how are they going to fund this sort of really detailed level of compliance that's required to to look at a state-by-state state and then a global country-by-country um, country privacy programs to to work in this way. So I think the more clarity that we have in a law, the, the better for consumers for understanding what's going on and the better for companies to be able to... Um, give light lighter touch and yet a comprehensive uh, framework around privacy compliance as they can without sort of like, you know, the, the laws and the compliance with laws being the biggest part of a company's budget.
0: Then,
2: one more question before we hit our sponsor break. But everything you're talking about is also now happening against a backdrop of the FTC's inquiry into what it's calling commercial surveillance practices, which is definitely a loaded term. And I've heard different opinions on the point of whether this is kind of an overreach. Um, I listened to a LinkedIn Live where Jessica Rich, formerly of the FTC, she was. Talking uh, with someone from IAPP, the International Association of Privacy Professionals, about how you know the FTC's rulemaking proposal and process is happening in this already confusing and overheated environment, where you obviously have GDPR, you have state laws, which I definitely want to talk about soon after the break, the federal privacy bill in Congress that we just talked about, and then this effort, which is a lot of different questions for lots of different stakeholders, some of them basic, some of them. Uh, really detailed, and that this effort might distract people from the America American Data Privacy and Protection Act, which is probably the most viable federal privacy bill we've seen in a while, and is also just uh, uh, a may- maybe recreating the wheel a little bit because the FTC has done a lot of research already into privacy and digital advertising.
3: Uh, Absolutely. I completely agree with uh, what Jessica was saying. I I watched that LinkedIn Live um, uh, webinar, I think you call it as well. Um, And it it is distracting and it is confusing. Um, I think one of the comments might have been that uh, was the purpose of this to be able to put some pressure on the outliers uh, to approve and and make this um, federal Privacy Act uh, come together and be approved and be passed. Um, I don't know. I've also heard that uh, they had this ready to go before, so they kind of done the work and now they've released it, but the timing does seem a little um, unfortunate, I would say. Uh, I did here in that that the FTC would support and of course they're going to be part of the the federal bill uh and i'm not sure what the word is there but sort of you know enforcing it or setting out some sort of guidelines um Mm -hmm. if the federal bill comes into place i hope it's (laughs) being designed to be something to sort of be helpful to the federal bill and its its um uh, journey to being passed I I do think it does create some confusion at the moment and for uh, have some sympathy for all the privacy professionals out there who have to read another um, treatise, as it were, on um, what should or shouldn't be. I think what it does highlight to me is, again, the lack of clarity in understanding about what the word privacy means in different contexts. And so... If at some point when all of these conversations are happening, you know, the right parties can come together to agree on what some sort of agreed set of definitions are, it would be really helpful for companies and their compliance and for consumers and society generally. Then I think we can build more on top of that.
2: So speaking of confusing things, after the break, which we're about to take, we're going to talk about the five different state privacy laws that are coming into effect in 2023. So stick with us.
1: (laughs) I'm Sarah Sluice, Executive Editor at AdExchanger. Joining me is TransUnion's Andre Swanston a veteran of streaming media advertising for the better part of a decade. Andre, how have you seen the industry evolve over that time?
0: Well, that's a, that's a great question. Um, you know, True Optic was acquired by TransUnion in, in 2020, uh, and is a company that we founded almost a decade ago now. And what we saw was that we were the first to patent a graph, uh, specifically to connect devices to the household. And what this allowed, um, advertisers and, and, ad tech platforms and publishers to do was co- to connect first and third party data to targeted advertising at the connected home level. And so, you know, almost 10 years later, and now as a part of Trend union, we've, we've continued to expand our capabilities. And the industry as a whole, I think, has much more of an appreciation for the importance of data and identity, uh, particularly at the household level. Um, at the same time, though, you're st- with with all the fragmentation and the walled gardens, you're still seeing um, some in the industry struggling to have a kind of a robust view of streaming households and, and the ability to do things with data in an interoperable way, uh, particularly across connected TV and streaming audio.
1: And a household level view is a different lens of identity compared to other places in digital advertising, which are more focused on individuals or devices. How do you think about that?
0: Yeah, well, you know, at TransUnion, we're focused on a view of my identity that that covers all those elements, right? So not just people or not just households. So we call it a three-dimensional view of identity or affectionately internally, we, we say we have our PhD um, uh, in identity. So people, households, and devices. And that's really critical when you're talking about streaming media, where the the, the bulk of the, the large advertising, you know, to connect to TV and smart speakers or gaming consoles uh, is done at the household level. And, and those devices are, are, are pretty much, you can think of them as like the, bi- the Bifrost or the connection for you, you Marvel fans to uh, connected media audiences. And so whether it's um, you know a, an approach to individual identifiers like a device ID or a mobile ID or more personal like an email address or household like an IP um, we, we believe that this kind of multi-layer approach and this three-dimensional approach is, is what separates us from, from others in, in the space
1: And how do your users leverage this view of identity coming from transUnion and the true audience data marketplace that you've built?
0: Yeah, so, you know, this three-dimensional view is is really behind the scenes in, in everything that we do at, at TransUnion Union relative to, to marketing solutions and, and, and how we service the media and entertainment ecosystem and advertising ecosystem, right? So our true audience data marketplace has the ability to, to leverage data for targeting across over 80 million connected homes in the U.S. We're synced and available in pretty much every major programmatic platform. Uh, as well as direct connections with um, an increasing amount of all the leading uh, publishers. So whether people are transacting programmatically or, or direct I.O., they have the ability to leverage a consistent kind of scalable data and targeting infrastructure powered by TransUnion you know because of that and because we were the first to really build a solution and and have a lot of these connections and relationships it's it's far and away the most widely used solution for data driven targeting across connected tv and uh, streaming audio in the US
1: Thank you Andre and thank you to our podcast sponsor TransUnion
2: And we're back and we're going to talk about state privacy laws. There are five of them coming into effect next year. So really, really soon, CPRA in California and laws in Virginia, Utah, Colorado, and Connecticut. So first of all, the acronyms are already seriously out of control because there's CCPA, CPRA, VCDPA, UCPA, CPA, and CPDPA. Uh, I'll let that sink in. I mean, I know it's like a
3: rap song, isn't it? It's like, you know,
2: (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I feel like I'm spitting a little verse when I I rattle those off.
3: I know, and I get confused with the CPPA and the CCPA and the CPRA as well because the CPPA is the attorney general. Yeah, the agency. So it's just a lot.
2: Um, so that was kind of a joke, even though it's not. But this is a real question. Mm-hmm. So what what are the the main operational challenges when it comes to complying with all of that, such a fragmented privacy landscape? And that's not even talking about GDPR and privacy laws in countries like outside of the EU.
3: Absolutely. It's, it's a lot to take in. And there's uh, only really one way to do it. And that's, you know, create charts and there's a lot of companies that um have helpfully created some charts that you can access you know uh there's probably one trust why wheel safeguard privacy they've got a lot of tools and resources that they're offering to people to be able to um, help them do the heavy lift of putting that all together uh, you have to Do a comparison chart and then you have to work with your product teams and think about are we going to just tailor this to the most strict law here where are the commonalities what can we do that can be repurposed if you've done gdpr work you know what's the overlap there um and and that's the way you can start to to build this out That's one element of it. The other element is each of them have specific contractual requirements that are needed, depending on whether you're a business or a third party or a service provider. Some of it's specific language, some of it's broader language. So then looking at, you know, how do we um, put all those contracts in place as well with parties up and down the ecosystem? And, you know, are, are we... Going to create up the ecosystem up the upstream with our SSPs. Do we send out those contracts first, or do they send them? Who's the the bigger negotiator in this party? How do we um, send these contracts out? Are they links? Are they uh, written amendments? Depending on what kind of contracts you've got in place, and then there's the broader sort of you know signaling piece of it. So. Um, The IAB Tech Lab has been building out the global privacy platform, and an element of that has um, a multi-state U.S. laws approach. At the moment, I think it's just got for uh, CPRA California, but also the IAB Legal Council has been building out a a multi-state privacy addendum. I think that's what it's called. It's to replace the limited service provider agreement, and... That's one way, because each of the companies in in the ecosystem have to have sort of contracts directly now, like, for instance, the publisher now has to have a direct contract with the um, DSP um, for certain purposes, and... The only way to really do that without sort of doing direct contracts altogether along the ecosystem is to all sign up to this multi-state privacy addendum. So there's a lot of challenges here, not just in sort of understanding the differences in the laws, but also in how to uh, do the contractual paper, the contractual requirements needed with each of the parties in the ecosystem that you have to have contractual privity with. And also for the signals to to work in the system as well.
2: And I mean, God, job security for privacy professionals. <laughs> um, and you were talking about obviously the the complexity and the differences. But how how similar are some of the state ba- based privacy laws? I mean, I, like if you're ready for CPRA in California, are you other than you know really digging into the details and making sure that you're you know, dealing with some of the specifics of the law, are you pretty much good to comply with like Colorado, Connecticut, et cetera? Or is that folly? Like, do you really have to be in the weeds on every single one?
3: Well, there is sort of a, a commonality in the whether or not there are disclosures required on a website and there's an opt-out ability. So for instance, CCPA um, for California, Virginia's CDPA, Utah's UCPA and Connecticut's CTDPA, they've all adopted an opt-out approach. Um, and, you know, the do not sell my personal information "Do not," and do not share button uh, could potentially be used for those purposes for an opt-out. So maybe you could um, combine that approach across those states. However, Colorado CPA requires an opt-in requirement for the sale of personal information or personal data. Um, So in that instance, instance, it's going to be a different kind of interface provided to Colorado residents. Uh, Also, you know, transparency requirements are are similar in some of the states, slightly different in some of them. So you're going to have to do sort of a, a, you know, again, this comparison chart to to figure out which ones you can have the commonalities with and and which ones are the outliers, and then decide is that particular thing something that's going to be consumer-facing or is that something internal? If it's an internal issue like records of processing activities, for instance, or data mapping or data protection impact assessments, there may be some different commonalities there that you can then leverage.
2: Do you think, though, that the, and this is a writ large question, not asking specifically about media math, but just writ large, do you think the attic industry is taking privacy seriously enough, like in practice? Because I do feel like there is a lot of talk. There's a lot of talk about it, Um, but I wonder how much is being translated into action. Um, I'm sure companies are considering their privacy programs, taking it seriously to a certain extent, but... Um, I just wonder how much the talk is translating into action for everybody across the industry.
3: Well, I think from what I see, there's a, a lot of money invested in this from each of the companies in the ecosystem and they're putting a lot of resources towards it, both on the product and the legal side. Um, the building out the different technical solutions, It's, I think it's taken very seriously, but it's also trying to understand while you're still doing business, if you're, um, you know, what the market is doing, you have to understand that, you know, you could be the, the front runner in absolute perfect to the letter, privacy, compliance, that sort of goes maybe even above what the law says. And then Because not everybody else in the industry is at that stage yet, you're kind of running ahead. So you have to have a balancing of, um, you know, understanding where the market's at while you're doing everything you can with a view to making sure the consumer comes first and also business imperatives are met as well.
2: But, what do you think about the the challenges that the overturn of something like Roe v Wade would create for the ad tech industry, which is you know built on the built on the free flow of information and you know information that is really just being used to sell uh, you know paper towels and apparel more effectively, but you know data. The argument always goes it can't it can be weaponized um if you collect it it needs to be taken care of because the potential for misuses is always there
3: i think i think these sort of sensitive data categories are already addressed in self-regulatory compliance for instance through the nai code on location data and the the challenge for all of this though, is in the gray area of what's starting to be put forward a little bit more as sensitive data where inferences can be pulled together. So where that happens, there may need to be some more um, consideration of how the industry can uh, recognize if, pieces of data are being pulled together to actually create an inference that could fall into that sensitive data category and um, make sure that that isn't used in that way to be able to protect it as uh, sensitive data uh, in the way that would be if it was directly sensitive data. So I think that's going to be a challenge because Um, Some of it might be, you know, some sites, definitely if it's location data directly that indicates that someone's been to a a certain place, like a clinic, that would be restricted um, under the NAI code. And I think they've actually just recently updated that as well, maybe in the last week or so, with some more guidance. So I haven't had a chance to look at that yet. but. Uh, it is something that the industry has already been mindful of and had some response to, but it will need to be um, even more cautious and have some further guidelines around that approach.
2: And of course, there is also the perception of what consumers believe, the headlines that they read. Uh, there are you know, countless headlines about what the overturn of Roe v. Wade will mean for privacy online and, you know, what data that's collected related to searches for abortion, what that could lead to, all of that stuff. So there's, it's, it's, a, it's a scary environment, I think, for a lot of people. And it's also no wonder that people, you know, think, I don't know, that Facebook is eavesdropping on them and that there are cabals of companies watching their every move as they browse the internet, because that is definitely how, you know, this is framed in um, the mainstream media in particular but what what can be just knowing all of that what can be done to rebuild trust between you know businesses the ad tech industry and just regular people regular people who definitely don't have the time patience inclination and shouldn't have to have any of that to understand what's going on you know in the background right
3: yeah i completely agree with that it's it's too complicated for the the individual to um understand it all and they shouldn't have to understand it all um so i think you know it's like any other kind of industry where you've got safety measures that have been put in place for instance i know a lot of people talk about the automobile industry you know cars but one example of that is um you know the the safety bags in cars that at a certain point they they didn't exist and then industry came together and required it and certain things they didn't stop driving but they put in safety features so i think you know looking more it's still an early industry it hasn't been around for that long and we're still building it but it's essential to society to continue to have the benefits of data data driven economies um so we 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 know that that's a benefit and then there are some risks. So we have to put in some of these safety guardrails that um, are agreed upon at, at a societal level that uh, are the actual harms and then look at what the real benefits are as well and agree upon how we can use those in, in the most uh, ethical and compliant way. It, it needs to have sort of a standard that everybody can uh, equally comply to otherwise you're going to get this uh differentiation in market and this anti-competitive uh unintended consequences of some of the laws that may be put in place so there's a real balancing act. And I think, you know, on that same webinar we spoke about earlier, there was a comment on that about the balancing the the benefits to consumers with the Mm -hmm. risks to consumers. And it's that balancing act that is in play at the moment. And as we... As an industry, start to respond to that and continue to build uh, privacy-enhancing technologies, and it starts to become more nascent across industry. And there's more uptake on that, and there's more uptake on the you know the new ideas that are being put into place, the different pathways for that. As that infrastructure gets built and is 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 um, ready to be used at sort of a, a key level then we're going to get the balance right, the balance of the benefits to to society versus the harms to society.
2: So that is well and sedately stated. And now I'd like to do something goofy, <laughs> which is I'd like to introduce a little lightning round okay. to bring us home. But first, uh, since I realized I can do this, I'm going to just to introduce this little segment of the podcast. I'm going to play a couple of seconds of... Quasar from the 1991 album Hypnotone AI. Okay. There you are. (laughs) I had so much fun doing that. I wish I knew how to fade out, um, but I don't, so it's going to be really abrupt. Oh, that
3: was a. really moment for a young young girl.
2: And now I'm gonna ask you questions about ad tech. Okay. Um, so yes, lightning round, just your your quick hot takes on this. Um, so the data protection authority in Belgium recently fined IAB Europe because it says that the transparency and consent framework which lets publishers share consent data for for RTB requests, that it's not GDPR compliant and the IAB IB Europe is appealing. It's a whole thing. Uh, they do have some time to fix it, whatever that means. Is the TCF fixable to meet the bar being set by the Belgians?
3: I do think so, and I think they're working very carefully on that at the moment, the IABU, um, with the view in mind that if the issues are fixed that it could likely become a code of conduct, which would be very helpful for everyone in industry.
2: Some people don't think that Google is ever going to get rid of third-party cookies in Chrome. I do think they will eventually, even though the can keeps getting kicked down the road. Uh, What do you think? Are cookies shuffling off this mortal coil in Chrome anytime soon? It's a tricky one because
3: um, while they don't deprecate it, then there's not as much uh, adoption of the Replacement IDs, and so then it creates an issue. Again, it's kind of you know a circular approach that they they there isn't an industry to sort of step in and take over. So um, I, I think it is difficult. I think they probably do want to. One thing I would say is that third-party cookies are not unlawful. So this move isn't because the privacy laws have required third-party cookies to be deprecated. It's a, a move by Google.
2: Medium Math just signed on to integrate with Unified ID 2.0. Um, there are lots of companies that have integrated by now, but like real talk, do you think that UID 2.0 or efforts like that can really like get the scaled adoption that they need to, um, you know, be the solution that they they're aiming to be for the industry?
3: I think it's going to be a helpful tool amongst other tools, other ID tools. Um, But because it's based on, you know, emails being hashed and salted, that requires a consumer to provide that email and certain disclosures for that, it won't have the same scale as third-party cookies do across the open internet. So the open internet scale challenge is still something that needs to be solved with another solution.
2: And last question, I mean, do you think that the privacy law that's being considered in Congress is is gonna pass, yay or nay? I want to put an optimistic yay out there, um, but I am an optimist
3: by nature, and I'm going to sort of put my bet on the yay.
2: All right, good, because I'm um, I don't I wouldn't say I'm a pessimist. I would rebrand that as realist, but but I don't know. I I'd like I'd like to think there will be two. So. For this episode i'll be an optimist fantastic <laughs> thanks fiona and thanks for uh thanks for singing on this episode in a, in a sense
3: thanks allison i really appreciate it and thanks for listening to to my past
1: tune in next week for another episode brought to you by transunion Until then, learn how the True Audience data marketplace powers targeting across streaming media by visiting trueaudience.com slash adexchanger. That's T-R-U-A-U-D-I-E-N-C-E dot com slash adexchanger.